Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Now, I said last week that we're going to move on to chapter 15, but I thought to myself, you know, I'm not sure that I have dealt the way I want to with the the counter to faith, the opposite of faith that, that is evident in these concluding verses of chapter 14 when Jesus walks on the water and Peter walks on the water and then Peter falls and then Peter is spoken to by Jesus. Faith we spoke about last week, but there is an immense counter to faith that is a very, um, a very interesting and complicated uh, emotion that I, I think it would be profitable to spend one more, one more Sunday focusing on out of these, these verses. So I'm going to ask you if you would to stand as we look at Matthew 14, 22 through 34. Jesus has fed the crowd. He sent the disciples away. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Certainly, you are God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you will permit it to come to us, not with words alone of man, but as the word of God, with power of the Holy Spirit, bringing and leading and and being produced by conviction, Father. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a picture in front of us of the interplay between faith and fear. Faith and fear. Faith and doubt. Doubt and faith are related, um, distinct, but related. Which one comes first is is a hard question to answer, but they're always found in tandem. Faith is found very often in opposition to fear, but as we go on this morning, I hope we see that it's also a product of fear that fear is fatal to faith or it is the ground of faith. Now, I'll speak about that, but let's just look at the fear in this passage at the outset. It's a windy night. It's been a long day. The disciples got up early and took Jesus away because he wanted to go and pray. He gets to where he's going, where he wants to go, a desolate area where he's going to preach or to pray, and he finds himself having to preach. He's not able to focus on the death of John the Baptist, which he's just heard about. He's not able to go and talk to his father in the way he wants to. 
he's stuck, but he's not stuck. God is never stuck, but he is because he loves the people and he's come to save men and to set prisoners free and to heal the, the sick and the brokenhearted and he's come to do all these things. He finds a crowd that has run around the lake. How they got there, how they knew to go there, how they arrived there before Jesus, we don't know. It is, it's a large crowd, 5,000 men and uh, more women and children, I'd guess 20,000 people. And how they got there so that Jesus was met by them kind of boggles the mind. Maybe it was a long voyage there as well as a long voyage away from there. We don't know, but they intuited where Jesus was going or they were informed by someone. They get there and then Jesus arrives and 20,000 people, that's like a very, very full Mudhen Stadium. Actually, I don't think the Mudhen Stadium holds 20,000. It's a large crowd, a lot of people. Now, the day is done. The crowd has been taught. Miracles have been accomplished. The disciples have grown frustrated through the day because at the end of the day, they say, send the people away. We've got to get rid of them. There's no food here. They should make their way home. They want some peace and quiet. <clears throat> Jesus says, well, you feed them, and they don't have anything. So Jesus turns the five loaves and the two fishes into sufficient food for 20,000 people. Great miracle. So they've just seen a day of miracles They have just been sort of helpers in a great miracle because they've passed out the food. And and then finally Jesus says, okay, you can leave. I'm going to dismiss the crowds. And he, he dismisses the crowds. The disciples take off in their boat and Jesus goes and prays. At some point in the night, Jesus finishes praying and whether supernaturally or naturally in his human nature aware that there's a storm, He's aware, he's also, it has to be, it could be either, but it, 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 there has to be some element of his knowledge as, as God as well as man. The disciples are scared and they're struggling. That's not something that you would know immediately as a man. You had to know their location and how you'd reach them in the middle of the lake using divine knowledge and, and how these work together And when Jesus is limited in his knowledge and when he knows as God, we don't know. But there's evidence of both. Jesus asks, who touched me? And it's a clear question that is looking for a response. It's not rhetorical. When the lady touches his garment who has an illness. And so we know that Jesus at times does not know. And yet he can know. And on this occasion, he knows something about his disciples. And so he he begins walking on the lake. Now, the disciples are in a boat that's not a huge boat. Someone left a, a little piece of paper here that made its way to my desk this last week. Someone had drawn, I don't know if it was an adult or a kid, but had drawn a uh, uh, disciple's boat. And it was this little thing about this big on, the, on a full sheet of paper, you know? Disciple's boat. Then on the other side, there was a, a boat that was this big, and it said, our boat. <laughs> now, I don't know. Who has a boat that dwarfs a 27-foot boat? But probably there's someone here who does, and someone was drawing it out. They're in a little boat, four feet of uh, freeboard, four feet above the water to the gunnel. Not a big boat, and there's a real storm blowing. And we know the the severity of the storm by by the fear of the disciples, because they're terrified of the storm. And four of the disciples, a third of the crowd is long-time experienced navigators of storms and waves. They're fishermen. They own boats. And so they're not easily frightened, but there's fear because of the nature of this storm. 
We also have a little indication of the strength of the storm by the, uh, by the hours that are involved. We're told that, um, that it was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came to them. That fourth watch takes place between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So put it in the middle of that 4, 4.30, okay? Jesus is coming to them. They must have left. I mean, they left at 9. I would guess no later than 9. And, and that would mean that they've been on the water seven and a half hours. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't that long. It's like 13, 14 miles long all told. Um, you can paddle four miles an hour easily with a with a mast and a sail you can go faster so they have been out there all night making almost no progress because they're not going the length of the of the lake we're told they're heading from where they were which had to be because of the description on the north side or a little bit maybe northeast of of true north they're heading from there across to the region of Gennesaret, which is by Capernaum. So if this is the lake, okay, and that's proximate, here's where they were, here's where they're going, right around here. You know, and if the whole thing is 14 miles long, you know this is only a couple miles, two or three miles, and yet <laughs> they've been going all night, and they haven't made it. And so it has to be a fierce storm. I said last week, there are calculators you plug in, depth of water, length of wind, uh, speed of wind, and you can figure out what the maximum wave size. At a 40-knot wind, 7-foot waves. Now, that's, that's huge. That's terrifying. That's, but that's not a lot of wind. You know, 40 knots is not uncommon in a storm. I've been in the boundary waters when it's been much higher than that, the gusts at least. And so we're facing... Now, why they didn't just give way, you know? Why did they not just say, okay, we're just going to let the storm carry us. We're going to not fight the storm. We're going to let it carry us to shore. And, uh, and wherever we end up, we'll start again tomorrow. I, I have no idea. I, I can't figure it. Maybe the wind blew them way out of the way, and so there's no good shore to go to. Maybe someone has a commitment, they got to go to the dentist the next day, and he's saying, we got to get there, we got to get there. I don't know. Maybe it's the kind of perversity of professional seamen who say, I'm not going to bow to this wind, I can handle this. And they're, they're frightened, but they're, they're, they're kind of maybe delighting a little bit in the greater fear of the non-navigators, the non-mariners in their midst. I don't know why they're doing this. I don't know what's causing it, but... They are frightened. They are, uh, they, are, uh, they are facing something that is bad. And uh, the fear has set in. But they, then there comes a greater fear. Jesus is walking on the water. He comes up to the boat. He's not exactly at the boat yet, but he's close enough as he's climbing the waves, walking along, not in the center of some kind of oasis of, of windless calm, but in the middle of the waves and the storms. He comes walking, lashed by the storm, walking towards the boat. They look up, and they see a man walking on, well, a man. Now, they see him, they under, but they're, 
flabbergasted. They, they have no category for this in their minds, none. They didn't have a category for turning five loaves and two fish into bread for 20,000 either, did they? But it happened. They didn't have a category for a man touching a blind man and giving him sight, but it happened. And so here Jesus is coming to them. They don't have a category for it. And because they have no category, they're filled with fear. Now, it's interesting. I'm looking out here and I can see, and even with your masks on, I can see Sue Overly probably 60 feet away from me. Right, Sue? You know, and you have a mask on and it's, I've got these bright lights, but I can see the disciples are looking. They know what Jesus was wearing. They know you know, the, the form and the gait of their master, their Lord, you know, even the gates of people, you can tell how many of you have looked at legs and could look at a pair of legs in this church and say, as they're walking, okay, and say, I know who that is. I'll tell you one thing. I could tell Jordan Doherty by, and I could especially tell Robin Kepler. I think most of you agree with me. You can tell things by, you don't have to see the face perfectly. But these men have no understanding, no way of understanding it. And so they're terrified of Jesus. Terrified. More terrified of the one who has just fed the 20,000 than they even are of the storm. And it's ironic. Their, their fear of Jesus is greater than their fear of the storm. It's obvious. It tells us that they looked at them and are terrified. And Jesus says to them, take courage. It is I. Now, even that makes it clear that they know who it is. He doesn't say, take, uh, take courage. It's me, Jesus, your master. Look, it's me. He says, it's I. In other words, come on, believe your eyes. It is who it looks like. It's I. I'm here, right? I'm walking on the water. The, uh, the disciples, he's saying to them, come on, look, it's me. But the terror and the shock of the power that he's just displayed have blinded them. And that's an important point. They are on the verge of receiving salvation from this storm. They are on the verge of this storm being quieted. The, the salvation is drawing near them in the form of Jesus. And Jesus actually does calm the storm. But they are more afraid of Jesus than they are of their predicament. They you get the sense, would rather live in the storm than live in the presence of such power. And so they're terrified of the power of Jesus. So having told us that they're all terrified, Matthew then goes on and tells us that when Peter recognizes and hears and understands that Jesus is saying, look, it's me, your friend, that Peter asks Jesus to command him to come on over to him in the water, on top of the water, not in the water. And Jesus does. He gives a command. He says, come. And remember, we must base our faith and where we're going and what we're doing on a command of God. It's not what we feel. It's what God wants and what God tells us. Jesus says, come. Peter gets up, walks toward Jesus on the water. But we read, seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Peter, this accomplished seaman, you say, it doesn't say that they're frightened, but here it does. Peter sees Jesus, then he turns away from Jesus, and he sees the wind, 
And he's terrified of the wind now. Not of Jesus, but of the wind. And when that terror hits him, he begins to doubt and he starts to sink. I really don't know how to divide doubt from fear. They are distinct, but it seems to me very often fear produces doubt, and then doubt does a number on our faith. But sometimes doubt leads to fear. I mean, if he's seeing Jesus, it seems incomprehensible that he would turn and look at the waves and suddenly say, Jesus walking on water, Jesus feeding 20,000, Jesus waves, oh, the waves, the waves, the waves. You know, that's what I'm going to be afraid of. You would think that knowing the character of Jesus, so there is an element of doubt. It has to be doubt behind the fear, but the fear produces doubt as well. How does it work? I don't know. It's a circle. So Jesus addresses this fear in three ways. And I'm not just talking about the fear of Peter. I'm talking about all of their fear. First, he tells all the disciples when they see him, take courage. Take courage. Take courage. It's what we need to say to each other and to ourselves often. Take courage. Stop the fear. Take up courage. We're going to talk about how we take up courage. Take up courage. No, it's not permissible in the kingdom of God to live in defeated fear. Take courage. This is the word of God. Take courage where you're doubting God's power. Take courage. Grab yourself by the neck. You know, the Bible has this great, great passage in it. where It's talking about the end times. And it talks about all the horrible things that are going to happen. All the scary things frightening things and then it says and I don't remember what exactly it says will be the last sign and and then it says and it's speaking to the Christian then raise your head high because your salvation is near the Bible says raise your head high don't be downcast don't be depressed don't be filled with anxiety it's hard and it's dark But at that moment, when it's darkest and hardest, your salvation is near. When is salvation near for these men? When it's darkest and hardest. Faith requires courage. Faith is defeated by fear. Fear is detrimental, actually deadly to faith, by introducing doubt. Now, I want to speak about the nature of fear, this emotion that we must conquer, that we must turn from our master into our servant if we are going to be children of God in the manner that Christ has called us to follow him. Fear is a powerful emotion, and it comes from many, many causes. It is common to all men, and it's inescapable. The question is not whether you fear. The question is what you fear. Fear is visceral. Visceral. It rises from the core of our being. It is impossible not to fear. Fear is almost innate. Um, Babies, they have certain fears at birth. Fears of falling. Even the tiniest infant fears. Fear is visceral. It, it wells up from inside. It's like there's a spring of fear 
in every human being. And it's subjective, visceral and subjective. Some of us don't fear heights. Others of us do. And the difference isn't found in heights, is it? It can be the same height, the same place. Some are afraid, others are not. It's subjective. The difference between those who fear heights and those who don't is not what's outside, but what's inside. You must, therefore, if you're going to conquer acrophobia, the fear of heights, you can't level every high place. You can't fill in the Grand Canyon so it's not scary anymore. You must change yourself. And you may think it's easier to fill in the the Grand Canyon than to change your fears, but it's not. Jesus wouldn't call us not to fear if it weren't possible to defeat it. So how do we master fear? And we must master it. Well, I want to read to you a verse. I think every fear that man has derives from a primal fear. One basic fear is the father and mother of all other fears, and it's the fear of death. The fear of death, there was no fear in the garden. There was no fear until death was introduced, and with death came fear, fear of God, hiding from God, fear of each other, anger, anxiety, depression. The Bible tells us about Jesus in Hebrews 2, therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, since we have flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, partook, in other words, took up the same, took up flesh and blood, that through death, okay, that through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, Jesus took on flesh, that through death he might render powerless powerless him who has the power of death which is satan that he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might set free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives what this says is that every man is born a slave a slave a slave to Satan. And the slavery, the manacles, the handcuffs, the bondage that we're gripped by is his control of death. And so Jesus came to defeat death. And the purpose of his defeating death was to set you free from the fear of death so that you are not subject to slavery all your lives. This is what Jesus came to do. If you live in fear, if your life is characterized by incessant anxiety, if you go through chronic bouts of deep depression, if you are prone to fits of anger and rage and you approach the world through a lens of anger, all these things are products of fear. The angry man is a scared man. The depressed person is a person who doesn't see the glory of Jesus. The anxious person is a person who's rejecting 
many of the truths that are, uh, so many of the truths that are in Scripture. Now, God has given us all characters. He made us individually with certain things that we're prone to. My father warned me when I was in my 20s that I needed to watch out for alcohol. And one of the things he said to me is, David, you know that I had an uncle and your mother both had uncles who were hopeless, wasted alcoholics all their lives. He said, this is something our family struggles with and you must be careful. It's true. It's no excuse for my drinking in the days I drank and drank and drank. But I was prone to it. It was something that came to me in certain ways. And you are prone to certain things because of the sovereign hand of God. It may be anxiety that you wake up in the morning and you see terrors on every side. It may be depression that you see no hope. It may be anger that you are always fearful of being done in and not done wrong and seeing others as hurting you. These can be and are often things that God has in his providence and sovereignty permitted to characterize you, caused you to fall under. Martin Luther, throughout his life, struggled with deep depression. Deep depression. And we've known many others who've had depression who've been great men and women of God. The truth is, that just as I have to be careful around drink and have been for 30-some years now, those of us who struggle with other sinful afflictions that come to us through illness of some kind or through family or through... We must still fight the sin that is at the heart of those afflictions and not give way to sin. An affliction from God is no excuse for sin. The fact that, a holy, uh, that, that a, an evil spirit from God came upon Saul so that he would throw his spear at David is no justification for throwing the spear, is it? No. We are to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And this is true in every area of temptation, including depression, anxiety, anger, and I could go on and list many, many other things. I'm just listing some of the obvious ones, right? And so, the Word of God here is speaking to all of us, saying whatever way fear causes you to look at God as the disciples look at Jesus with fear and doubt rather than faith, fearing Him and not running to him, but actually fearing him rather than accepting what he can do and looking to him for salvation. In whatever way we do that, we must fight it. And it's a spiritual battle. There are drugs that will help us with depression. There are counselors who can help us with anxiety. But in the end, this is a battle that's internal and against sin. And we must, by the power of God, learn by faith to say no to fear. We must. It's not optional for any of us. We will struggle. We will fight. We will fall. But through the power of Jesus, we have been set free from the fear of death. 
that led us into slavery for all our lives. How do we fight fear? Well, you fight fire with fire. You oppose the fear that leads you to doubt, that produces anxiety, that causes you to be angry, that leads you into depression, the fear that kills your faith by embracing a different fear. You can't live without fear. What you want to do is play a card trick on Satan and on your fear by while it's not looking and while you're bold, slipping another card in and saying, I'll fear this card, not that card, and saying, get rid of that card, Satan. All right? So there are three things that tend to cause fear. They're true of good fears and bad fears. The first cause of fear, the cause that's probably most elemental, deepest, most known to all of us, is the fear of harm, the fear of pain. And this fear can come in a variety of disguises. It can be fear of falling off a cliff, which is pretty elemental, isn't it? But it can be fear that people are talking about you. Same fear. They're talking about me. They don't like me. It's the same basic fear. Fear of harm. Fear that I'm being hurt. Fear that something bad is happening. This is how the the disciples look at Jesus. They fear him more than they fear the waves. Think he's a ghost. They have no reason to fear him. He's not threatening. He's no threat. Nothing he's doing that would cause you to feel, ah, no, nothing. But they have this fear of harm. And it's non-discriminating. It attaches to the storm. And then when Jesus comes, their Savior, it attaches to him. We react to the power of God with fear. And often it's not a good fear. Like the children at Mount Sinai with Moses on top and the mountain surrounded by clouds and lightning. And the mountain and the ground around it, the plains around it quaking. And they're scared. They say, we don't want this God. This is what the disciples are doing. They have a fear of God that's not a good fear. Jesus speaks about the master who goes away and gives money to his servants. The first one gets number of talents, returns it doubled. The second one gets a lesser number, returns it doubled. third one hides the money that the master gave him in the ground. And when the master comes back, he says, is this all you have? And the, ma- the, the servant says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no feed. And I was afraid. I went away and hid your talent in the ground. Now, this is a parable about man and God. And this guy fears God, that he's not going to do good for him, that he's going to just be nasty to him. This is not a good fear of God. It's sin. It assumes that God is your enemy. And it will not run to God. It runs away from him. This should not be found in you or me. It will not be the fear of a child of God. And yet there is a fear of harm and of hurt that is essential and should oppose this fear. Jesus later says to his disciples, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, the one after he is killed has authority to cast into hell yes I tell you fear him what does Jesus do here he introduces the greatest fear we can possibly have eternity in hell damnation and he says 
don't fear all these other things. You know, slip in the fear of hell, you know? If you're going to fear all these stupid things that are inconsistent with faith in God, realize this thing is so infinitely much more dangerous. And then slip that in and forget these fears and live with a, a good and healthy fear of God. So you fight fire with fire. Fight these nonsense fears for the Christian with the great fear, the fear of God. It's the second form of fear and kind of the flip side of the former. It's the fear of missing out on good, that we're going to miss out on something good. Much of what we do is driven by fear not of harm, but of not obtaining good. The harm, if you want to call it, of not receiving something that we want, of falling short of some good. A student wants to go to an Ivy League school, wants to, and is so adamantly on course to do it that he doesn't go out with friends, he works every night, he doesn't party, he doesn't do anything. He won't even take a, a risky class where he'd get a B because he's going to, that's, that's a kind of fear, but it's a fear of missing out on good. I can't miss out, I have to get in on this. This is a fear that drives many of us. But this is a fear that you have to turn on its head like the previous one, the fear of harm. We fear missing out on good. We fear losing out on fun. We fear that our, our neighbors are getting ahead of us in their pursuits. We fear not having a new car. We fear not being popular in school. We fear missing out on opportunities to make money. We see the stock market going up and up. We see housing going up and up and we're saying, I'm locked out. I can't do it. I'm not getting it. And so much of the Bible is written to convince us not to fear these small things, but to fear God with this same fear. Read the Psalms. Listen to David and the other psalmists talk about the mercy of God, the love of God, the generosity of God, and stop worrying about your neighbor's car and not getting that good and start worrying about not getting all the good that God holds in store for you. There's a fear to miss out on the blessings of God. There's a third fear. And that's a fear that is linked to love. And that's the fear of, of failing those we love. It's a kind of love and it's also a fear. And this one is almost always honorable in one way or another. It's not like the first two that are often just purely selfish. This one is not. And yet it can be used in pursuits that are not glorifying to God. This often honorable fear can lead to great acts of courage. The mother who refuses treatment for her cancer while she's pregnant because she loves the baby. She fears hurting her baby more than she hear, fears the cancer. The soldier who risks or perhaps loses his life to protect the members of his company. This is the fear that drove Jesus to the cross. Isaiah the prophet says that when the Messiah comes, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus delighted to fear his father. 
And one great way he delighted to fear his father was his desire to do his will and not to fall short. He wanted to do the will of his father. He loved his father. He knew his father. This is a great and powerful fear. The Bible says perfect love drives out fear. And this is the ultimate form of fear. It's love. Loving God so much that we don't want to disappoint him. Now there are counterfeits to this and I warn you. You can look and say I don't want to hurt my children by requiring them to obey God. Many of us have this false love. I don't want to hurt my child. I'm not going to insist on my will. I want my child to know my love. And in fact, it's not love at all. It's hatred. The Bible says that the man who does not discipline his child hates his child. There's only one great object of our love, and that's God. And every other love must be secondary. We love God, and therefore we are able to love our children without this kind of insane love that gives them their head, lets them do what they want, and calls it love. This is the great source of Christian courage, love. It drives out fear, fear of disappointing God. Polycarp, an ancient leader of the church, taught by John the Baptist, or uh, the Apostle John, Bishop of Smyrna on the west coast of Turkey, in his, in his older years, um, we think he was 86 when it happened, but it could have been 86 years that he'd been a Christian already. He was threatened with death by the Romans, death by burning, but because of his age and reputation in the city, the authorities urged him at the, at the base of the, of the pyre at where he was going to be burned, urged him to recant and to renounce Jesus. Polycarp is famous for saying, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So, we fear God. We love him. We fear him viscerally. We fear disappointing him. We fear him in every way. And that is the guide to a happy, fear-free life, a courageous life. The fear of God drives out fear. The righteous fear of God is the antidote to doubt. Take courage. God is good. Take courage. God's word never fails. Take courage. Every good word of God has come true. Not one word has failed. Read his promises and confront your fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great example of Jesus, this loving Savior who did save even the fear-filled disciples who were frightened of him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will take action, not act as though we're servants of fear, but recognizing that you have set us free by dying, that we will take action to defeat our fears and to live in faith. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.